It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Bonus content. Chris, did you know that we have a Patreon that supports this podcast? Yes, I I am aware of that. Um, It's nice. It's a nice community. We've had some longtime supporters, um, some folks that were on board early on and and have kept with us. And uh, yeah, you know, it's it's how we make doing this kind of worth it is having that community over there supporting the show. The one downside about our Patreon business model that we're running here is that we don't get to hear Chris Caloose and NormaCast style ads. Which no, that's are a, true. A, a big part of the show. Yeah, um, it's <laughs> definitely my favorite part. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I've thought about that. Where if I had a Patreon feed, like I think people would actually complain um, that they didn't get to hear the new the new ad. Um, honestly, I mean, it's definitely a feature. But um, yeah, it's nice that I don't have to rack my brain for that shit over here, though. So I appreciate the Patreon. <laughs> Uh, or the patrons over there uh, helping us out. Yeah. Well, we, we're in a new model of uh, journalism and um, media and content creation that's more just, you know, direct support to artists and writers and podcasters and other folks that you like whose content you listen to. And so we don't do this often, Chris, but we're plugging our uh, Patreon on our public feed. So if you're listening to this, you are. Uh, bottom feeder, which is the technical term for person who we love, but we love less than we might otherwise. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're the third kid. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, are you, you know, as long as they're getting fed, that's all they're going to get at this yeah. point. <laughs> but uh, because, like I said, we do love you. You you are still a child to us, uh, albeit a third child, uh, third rail child. We're going to give you a little taste of what you've been missing. And um, we're going to release an episode that we recorded earlier this summer with Alana Yip, who is a World Cup and Olympic climber from Canada. Amazing person and commentator on the IFSC. And also got herself into a little bit of hot water earlier this year, or at least just like turned a controversial spotlight on herself when she kind of called out the IFSC for not doing enough to address weight and, you know, BMI and body issues uh, within the hardcore, like kind of comp climbing community. So we had a great conversation with her. This is like a super important topic that really should be heard by everyone so that they, they can kind of put that that issue, this important issue on their radar. So we wanted to release this on the public feed, but also uh, use this opportunity to just encourage you to uh, join us on Patreon. It's like, what, like $5 a month, Chris? It's like so cheap. Isn't it specifically 514? It's 514, yes. You can be, (laughs) it's $5.14. And um, that's strictly for tax purposes. Um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, uh, there's no, there's no rationale behind that. But yeah, it's 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 just well, better cheap. hurry it's, before it's five fifteen because the yeah you know, new five as, new, old five fourteen is five fifteen now. As soon as Seb Wan climbs a five sixteen a, or maybe it's Andre will be the first, and we'll raise our rates to five dollars and sixteen cents a month. Exactly. <laughs> so get in while you can. Is exactly. what we're saying. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it, you know, think about it as you buy us an expensive cup of coffee. Or actually, most places that's just a cup of coffee um, a month to to listen to our shit and um, which we keep split this thing going. Yeah, which we split. So it's actually we each, we just each take a few sips from that coffee. Yeah, you're, bu- you're basically <laughs> buying us a latte at Starbucks, which doesn't taste that good. And then I like I'll take we, three sips, and Chris, uh, yeah, will drink the rest. We have to fight over who gets the first frothiest <laughs> sip. <laughs> Um, so hope you enjoy this. There's tons of other bonus content. What else have we done, Chris? Dude, We've done so what many are your bonus episodes. I know what one of my favorites is. I can go right um, to it. 
what was the last one we did? It was about 8,000 meter peaks and climbing and, and some controversy there, uh, which is a hobby horse of the two of us as, you know, very authoritative sources in the 8,000 meter climbing scene. Exactly. No, my, my recent favorite was the Sly Stallone cliffhanger movie night. Yes. It was fucking awesome because also I ended up talking to um, Gia Franklin, who, who did the awesome what at that time was the longest free fall stunt ever done. Um, mm-hmm. It was a climber married to Scott Franklin. And uh, yeah, so we added that in as bonus on top of the bonus. Um, so I thought that was a pretty mega bonus That was episode. mega. I mean, that's worth it alone. Um, so if you need to just dip into one episode. And, and that's the other thing too I want to say is like some people I noticed like dip in, they pay for you know the Patreon feed for a little bit, then they dip out and then they always come back because they need that sweet new bonus content. Um, so you can do as you wish, but um, don't, don't be shy. Come join us. I would, say that the, I would say that the bonus content is even more risque as well. Absolutely. We're even more, we're even more willing to put our feet in our mouths in, in the bonus stuff, for sure. Because we yeah. figured, well, it's just our friends listening at this point. <laughs> <laughs> They're it's all like old-fashioned podcasting. It's like podcasting from like 2008. Just yes. your friends are listening, so. Yeah, um, and we also did like a live uh, episode with Tommy Caldwell. That's true. Um, that was awesome. That was just open to people who were on the on the Patreon feed. So check out patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Find $5.14 a month and uh, you can Maybe join. pull it out of your trust fund. Yeah, pull it out of your trust fund. <laughs> you, you know you've got one. <laughs> And thank you. (laughs) And thank you, Father's Financial Planner, for that. (laughs) Anyway, let's get to a conversation with uh, Alana Yip. Alana Yip is a World Cup competition competitor, Olympic qualifier, and the second most famous person in Canada. Alana, welcome to the show. You are a famous World Cup climber. Famous? No. Very famous. <laughs> you're well. You're famous because you. Well, I guess one one uh, reason you're famous is that you were, I think, the first Canadian to qualify for the Olympics in 2020. Is that correct? first female Canadian? First female, okay. uh, technically, Sean qualified before me. Okay. So second, your your fame is only surpassed by Sean McCall, but you're a close second to him. A few other people, I think. <laughs> um, no, but, you know, Chris and I have followed your career uh, to the degree that we follow competitive climbing, which, you know, I think is like kind of not super serious, but not disinterested either. And we love talking to people like yourself because you have a ground eye view of of this side of the sport that you really need to it's a whole world unto itself you know like there's the the community the the training the ethics the all of it is kind of welled up and revolved around the competitive scene so mm-hmm. you're in uh europe at the moment you're kind of not, you skipped the last world cup but you're on the world cup circuit so to speak so why don't you just tell us a, a little bit about how the world cup season is going thus far Ooh, well, this year's World Cup season has been quite a challenge for me. Before the Olympics, I had quite a bit of, su- of success, especially mostly in bouldering on the World Cup circuit. And mentally, it's been quite challenging since the Olympics. This season, physically, I felt the best that I ever have. I changed coaches and was pretty excited by some new training it was a lot of fun, but kind of struggled with the confidence. So I think this season has been a lot of learning for me and unwillingly have been dragged back into kind of a beginner's position in the World Cup circuit is kind of how it feels. But it's been interesting for sure. Is that a reflection of just a new type of training that you're or a new approach to the competition that you're dabbling with? Or is it some other... Was it was well, the high of the Olympics just kind of are you in like kind of the doldrums of of the aftermath of competing in the Olympics and having a hard time 
getting on board with like the World Cup stuff? Yeah, I think that's probably a little bit more of it. And I know the Olympics has been quite a, a while past now, two years pretty much. But since qualifying, I've felt a lot higher expectation mm. uh, and put a lot of pressure on myself because of that to perform and to be as good or better than I ever have been before. And of course, that just leads to me sort of choking in competition. So that's not ideal. Yeah, I mean, it's not like there's an entire country like, you know, <laughs> try, trying to pay attention all of a sudden when <laughs> when it went from just, uh, you know, the, the relatively insular, you know, to climbing. Um, anyway, competition scene, you know, climbers watching maybe a little bit of mainstream media and stuff like that. But then the whole world kind of perks up and starts watching that. That had to have been, yeah, pretty heavy pressure. Um, did you feel it right away? Did it did it come on slowly? What what were you thinking in terms of um, you know from qualifying to the Olympics to rate leading up to the Olympics? I think it came on pretty slowly for me, almost more or less just after the oh, Olympics. Okay. I think leading up or in the qualifying process, I was so single minded, so focused. It didn't really bother me any of the pressure and expectation and then it was kind of fun in a way all the media and all the attention getting to talk about climbing to this whole new group of people all of a sudden you're yeah talking about something that you've done your whole life but to like the national kind of media outlets and so you're reaching this whole new audience i thought that was pretty cool and then afterwards i think that's when I came out of it into the next competition season and realized, oh, my expectations for myself for performance are just as high, if not higher. And I'm in no way meeting that. And it's kind of hard to reconcile. You know, you've been thinking about this probably and struggling with it for two years. Um, and you're talking about becoming a beginner again. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. Like, what are you doing? Um, you know, what have you put in place? Or are you just, uh, you know, I don't know, are you banging your head against the wall? I don't know. Maybe you haven't done anything. I don't know. Well, Why are you a beginner again like, in your mind? <laughs> sometimes it feels like I'm banging my head against the wall. You just but... scream at the wall every morning and that's like your therapy now or something. <laughs> a lot of training in the styles that I am not so good at. I feel like in the last couple of years, the style of competition slab climbing has progressed so much. And I was never... I was okay at slab climbing before and not amazing. And now it's just really hard for me. There's a lot more of these like dynamic stand-up, kind of dynamic into static positions. I've worked a lot on that, but it's still really hard for me. Um, and some things that used to come rather naturally to me, like a good mindset, good headspace during the competition, even when things are not going well, have felt challenging to maintain this year. So I've had to kind of go back to basics and remind myself of what are the foundations of a good competition mindset for me and practice again, bringing myself into that headspace before a competition. Whereas from what I remember from competing in 2019, the and the lead up to the qualifying for the Tokyo Olympics, it was something that was so dialed, so natural. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. I mean, like slap climbing has this, uh, you don't think of that as being like the the, the, the future of, of competition and um, and the, the thing that would sort of stump you this, this far into your career. I think that just kind of speaks to the strangeness of, and uniqueness of the, of where setting has gone, where, you know, people have gotten really creative and there's new shapes and volumes and stuff that allow for, for different ideas. And I mean, as I, I mentioned earlier on a previous episode, I was in Vail for whatever the GoPro competition is there, the bouldering comp, and uh, I hadn't the... been around a comp. NACS one that just happened a yeah. month ago? Yeah. Um, I knew there was a, an official name for it, so I didn't want to mess it up. But yeah, that was it. And I was just, I hadn't been around that level of comp in a while. And I was really blown away by how creative and difficult and just bizarre the setting styles were. I mean, they just looked insane. Um, and it really looked insane in a way that you don't, you can't really grasp in, um, 
you know, if you're just watching a stream online or, or, um, you know, looking at Instagram videos of people doing parkour problems and stuff. Um, so it was cool to see it up, up in close in person and just kind of see that progression of style. So just real quick, I think, as, as I mentioned, you're the second most famous person in Canada, but I think a lot of listeners <laughs> might not know your, uh, your backstory as a climber. So what, how did you get into, into climbing? How did you become a, you know, this high level elite competitor? What, what was the trajectory to bring you where you are today? Uh, definitely not a linear trajectory, some sort of loopy, very wavy kind of trajectory. I started climbing, or the first time I went climbing, I was maybe around six years old. And the other, the the most famous Canadian climber, Sean McCall, um, <laughs> his parents and my parents are actually longtime family friends. They've known each other since university, and they didn't climb back then. Sean's family started climbing when Sean was 10, I believe. So I'm six years younger. And they took me for the first time just for fun to the gym when I was six. I enjoyed it, you know, to the point where when I was eight, I had my eighth birthday party there and uh, at the climbing gym and joined the youth program and at age nine joined the climbing team. I just, yeah, really enjoyed the sport in its own right and really fell in love with all of it not just the climbing, but also the community, all the people surrounding it. And slowly as I went through my teens, kind of all of my other extracurricular activities, I guess I quit in favor of climbing. And then I finished high school and aged out of the youth competition circuit. And at the time, Sean was the only person I knew that was competing on the World Cup circuit, and he was so much better than me. So I just didn't see a place for myself in competition climbing. And I liked outdoor climbing, but it wasn't like a a life for me that I saw at that time. So I decided to quit climbing completely when I started university. And I didn't climb for almost a year, like at all. And randomly decided to go on exchange to Switzerland for my engineering degree. At first, it was really supposed to be for engineering. And when I got there, I got the chance to climb with Zurich team. So the way it worked in Switzerland at that time was each city would have a team. So I got to climb with the Zurich team. And there were a bunch of women around my age who were really training a lot, climbing hard, competing, and also climbing outside and good friends. And I really enjoyed that started competing again. And then when I came home from exchange, was super psyched to both climb outside and compete and won Canadian nationals that year. And then the following year started doing the World Cup circuit. It sounds like the, the you know, you keep mentioning the community and then you've stopped climbing, but the, the nature of this community, again, a team, this uh, Zurich team kind of brought you back in. It's sort of safe to say that that's kind of a hallmark of what um, what you get from not just competition, but climbing in general. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, that sounds, uh, nice, but I want to talk about controversy, Alana, (laughs) and that's why we brought you on today. So, um, you, you posted something on Instagram recently that went relatively viral, I'd say. And, um, it was sort of returning to this, um, a perennially thorny topic that we seem to, you know, to that seems to get raised about once or, or twice every few years uh, by someone mm-hmm. or another. And um, it, of course, we're talking about uh, the issue around weight loss and eating disorders and BMI and how that factors into competition, how that factors into our sense of health, our sense of self-worth. This is a, 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 a topic that as you um, said in your post, everyone knows about it, but yet no one seems to do anything about it or know even what to do about it. So I think it's worth trying to talk about this a little bit today and seeing if we can make any progress on this, on this topic, because, um, as you, as you point out, it just comes up all the time, but no one, no one really knows what to do about it. So why don't you just start by telling us what was the impetus for, um, making this, this post on Instagram? 
So I do want to clarify, I guess, that in the Instagram post, I was trying to be very specific in talking about competition climbing. It is, of course, a problem in the climbing community in general, every aspect of the sport. But I was trying to be very specific about competitions because we do have a governing body in competition climbing. And I think that they can do something about it. You specifically targeted the IFSC as... um... It may, you made it sound like they had abandoned their BMI standards. Is that is that was that the impetus for this post? Yeah. So the the impetus for the post was that before this year they had a BMI limit, quote unquote, which was extremely low. I believe it was seventeen point five for women and eighteen for men, um, which is within the underweight category, and of course. BMI is a terrible indicator of overall health, especially for athletes, for people who have muscle mass. What they used to do is in semifinals at every World Cup, everybody would get their BMI tested. And if you were under this limit, your federation, your country would be sent a letter saying, hey, you're under the limit and you needed to just return it signed saying, yep, we acknowledge that this person is healthy and signed by a doctor as well. And if you're a minor, your parents. So just to be clear, the prior protocol was that if you came in under the 17.5 BMI as a woman, the, the standard was not to like forbid you from competing, but merely to notify officials in your country or and or parents that you're have a low BMI and then let them kind of decide what to do. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Uh, And at the beginning of this year or just before this season started, the IFSC started talking about wanting to update BMI limit a little bit to 18 for women and 18.5 for men. I believe I could be backwards on that and start screening for red S, which is relative energy deficiency in sport, which is basically if your energy deficiency is just if you're under eating, what your body actually needs, and to be specific in sports. So the IOC has released a consensus paper on the harm of Red S, and they're, I believe they're meant to release an updated version this year. So if you have heard of female athlete triad before, Red S is kind of the expansion of that to acknowledge that it's not only females that suffer from consequences from under underfueling, um, and then there are more than just three issues from it. And the IFSC talked about wanting to get to a point where athletes under their BMI limit are screened for red S through various blood tests, um, a DEXA scan, so uh, bone density and body fat percentage, and some psychological testing and I guess at potentially banning some athletes or um, revoking their annual license based on the results. But this never materialized. And in fact, they just stopped BMI testing at all this year while they developed their new regulations. So I did manage to speak to the IFSC about this uh, and actually the woman who is working on these new regulations. And they are working on new regulations. I just worry that they're not going to be strong enough uh, and they're not going to come fast enough. Because really, the position I wanted to take on this is we need regulations to protect athletes' health. Because at the end of the day, climbing is a strength-to-weight sport. At some point, like strength-to-weight ratio does help. But like just losing body weight, a lot of it and for extended periods of time can have serious consequences on athlete health, uh, mental and physical, long term. And then to think about that performance gain, um, results and medals can be so enticing for people and even countries, federations, coaches that they will encourage the athletes to do whatever it takes. I have heard many stories of federations and coaches encouraging their athletes or requiring their athletes to lose weight in order to compete. It's interesting because this has been sort of, I think, an ongoing, I don't know, hobby horse or whatever that I've had. You know, and I don't know too much about, we were talking about, like, I've never been inside the competition scene. Um, But I was a high school teacher and I saw even athletes 
youth athletes at that level doing things just to just to win in front of their friends. And then and as as climbing is like accelerated into this mainstream media and become something of a profession and then you throw the Olympics in there. You know, I've I continually have been talking about these concerns, you know, where suddenly it's no longer even the the athletes, but it's the athlete managers and the coaches and things that suddenly get on board with this stuff, which is, you know, it's like we do not have to look very far. We we can look at gymnastics um, and see a dark future for climbing if these things don't get put in place. But really, I guess my question is, is when this was sort of implemented, at least at, at the kind of lower enforcement level that it seems like it was, um, what was the what was the attitude of the athletes, of parents, of coaches when, you know, the IFC first tried to do this BMI testing? Was there pushback? Were people on board, maybe publicly but privately not on board? You know, for themselves, so to speak. It's always you're always supposed to have a public face of protecting athletes and protecting kids, but then what you actually do for yourself are, are two often two different things. So, what did you find with the with the original implementation? I've heard that a lot of countries just kind of don't care. Well, I know that they just don't care because it's it's a joke. All they have to do is get a doctor to sign off that the athlete is healthy. They didn't need to do any sort of testing to verify that. So it was nothing. Like they, they, I don't think anyone right. cared at all because it meant absolutely nothing. And the way that the BMI tests were carried out was a joke at some point. Like They allowed athletes to be weighed wearing winter jackets in the middle of August. People talk, I've heard athletes talk about how do you cheat the BMI test? Oh, you just like slouch a little bit so you're shorter. It's hmm. an absolute joke. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, I mean, all other sports, again, you know, it's like I, I, climbing is late to the table. Um, this has all been, been happening in other sports, um, especially individual sports and especially women's sports. Mm -hmm. um that and you know the the world proves that if you if you can cheat you will because i mean that's why these these doping organizations have to be on the absolute utter cutting edge of technology because if they can get away with it they can get away with it and we we want to believe like climbing no no it's like less serious and it's all for good fun and everything else but again you throw in the olympics and i think that's really like this weird you know thing that probably shook it up in a big way, especially for national teams. I don't think it's just the Olympics. It's been happening much longer than mm -hmm. the Olympics was ever involved. I mean, as long as climbing, I mean, as long as I know of kind of high level sport climbing, people have been mm -hmm. doing this to send harder, right? I mean, that, that's really also, you know, as you mentioned in your post and can't, what you just said, you can't quite get around the fact that being lighter, at least in the short term, is going to be a performance advantage. Mm -hmm. and and what you're talking about is, and what's always been sort of the, I guess the argument against it to try to have with an athlete is to, to say, but what about your long-term health? But, you know, that's an argument that's really hard to have with a 20-year-old or a 19-year-old or an 18-year-old or 20, whatever. Yeah. You know, and like, you know, all sports, it's the same thing. Like steroids are going to, you know, eventually do all these horrible things to you and, and people will say, all right. I mean, I, I remember in my high school in the eighties, like there were kids taking steroids to try to get bigger for football. And like, we, you know, we're like an okay football school and like, I don't know, you know, it's just like, it's, it, you get into this winning mentality or like performance mentality. And I think a lot of people will sacrifice long-term this or that to get that win or to get that, that recognition in the moment. Yeah. And that's the really hard part about it and right now the um, age for competitions like you can be 15 and be competing mm -hmm. and i believe that it's going to go up by one year next year and which i support completely i think that uh there's a big difference moving like a, a, between a 15 year old and a 16 year old and their ability to be taken advantage of by their ability to stand up for themselves in situations it one sounds like your concern is well placed and oh, let me make one last point andrew because yep. You know, I'm I'm in agreement with you in the sense that what I was just saying about what kids will do or or young adults will do to win, that's why a governing body is looking out for them has to have stronger stronger regs in place because mm -hmm. that's where it has to happen. Because if you're, it's left up to the individual or even the individual coaches and stuff like that, you're going to have it's just mm -hmm. going to fall through the cracks the same way it is. And 
you know, the, the stronger, the better, in my opinion, with, with regulation. And, and again, we're dealing with young, like you were just pointing out, we're dealing with very young people. Yeah. It's, it's full of pitfalls and, and they need to be ahead of it or else, you know, down the road, we're going to be looking at the, these same sort of issues. Like I said, that we've seen other youth sports, um, over the last two or three decades. Mm-hmm. But anyway, sorry, Andrew. Well, I was just going to build on what you were saying, Chris, which I think is a good point about the distinction between, you know, being a committed climber who's willing to, you know, make the sacrifices and do the work or whatever to to get those performance gains for the competition next week or for the route that they really want to send. Those are things that we all laud and, you know, celebrate and those are signs of a of being a, you know, a committed and great rock climber. But the problem is, of course, in this long-term vision of what you're doing to your body, you know, and if it's sustainable 5, 10, 15 years down the road. Um, and so the a lot of the concern around um, dropping weight, and Alana, correct me if you think this is an inaccurate thing to say, but it seems like a lot of it is based or just rooted in like this long-term view of health and you could easily see how someone can convince themselves that what they're doing is are all the things that you're supposed to do to stand on the podium. But, um, in fact, it's only, you know, 15 years down the road that it becomes a problem and it's easy to see how people can just put that off. So I, I agree that the IFSC needs to be the, like, at, you know, they can do a lot to just help with regulations, but it's not actually clear or it's not clear to me exactly what, it looks like to be on the right side of that line versus the wrong side, because it's such a fuzzy area and you don't know if um, you're going to have like deep dysfunction in your, you know, adrenal system or something, you know, 15 years down the road because you've been depriving yourself of 300 needed calories every day for 10 years or whatever it is. So yeah, feel free to respond to any of that. There are two ways of looking at this issue. And one of them is absolutely athlete health. And I think that is the best and most effective way to look at it. But the other way that some people do look at it is losing a certain amount of weight for a big competition. Is it a form of doping? Mm. It's unsustainable long-term. It's bad for your body long-term and it helps you perform better. So that's an interesting view that I've heard from other people. What's your, and just to be clear, what, where do you fall on that question? I don't know at what point, but at some point, like at some amount of weight loss, I do think that it is not necessarily small amounts. It's when you're seeing drastic amounts of weight loss. But I still think that the athlete health perspective is the more important perspective to tackle. It is a very gray area. How do you say if somebody's healthy or not and what they're doing to their body is is healthy on the healthy side or not on the healthy side? And it's yeah a massively fuzzy gray area. What the IOC is supposed to be coming out with better categorizations, like actual medical categorizations that they've worked with a large team of doctors around the globe to develop based on these blood work tests, these psychological tests and the DEXA scan. So your bone density and body fat percentage, all your hormonal values, etc. I'm not a medical professional, so I'm not totally sure. But at what point are you kind of like green light or yellow light, orange light, red light? And I did see an early draft of this and from what I saw, you know, red light is, from what I understood, you basically should be in the hospital right now. You're having heart palpitations and green light is you're perfectly healthy and there's a spectrum in between. Mm-hmm. So what I think a good amount of regulation could be based on these guidelines, having every athlete screened, have all these tests done, and you have a baseline to say, if you're in the red zone, you absolutely cannot compete and you should be getting medical help. Your federation should in some way be responsible for ensuring that you're getting the help you need and not that they just drop you from the team because you can't compete anymore. And at some of these other in-between levels, you're either maybe suspended for a few months and you have to get some sort of medical help, or you're just monitored and you're allowed to compete but certain values are monitored in your 
blood work or and I do think that potentially body weight can be a way to help monitor athletes over the season done by the federation and not as a marker to compare against anybody else but solely to compare against yourself and I guess probably BMI if the athlete is still growing but if you're weighed at every competition and they notice a significant downward trend maybe that's a point at which they step in and say hey we need to get all your values screened again, or you can't continue down this path. Something has to change. Otherwise, you won't be able to compete or something along those lines. Yeah, I can imagine um, just as these kind of biomedical tests become more advanced that there could be there could be a silver bullet there with where, where you just have a better understanding of what the what to look for in terms of athlete health and where. And I imagine there would be trends involved that kind of point into the direction of healthy versus unhealthy behavior that could be flagged. That's only part of the concern that you raised in this Instagram post. Cause the other part was just the culture of this performance mentality and sacrificing, you know, long-term health for short-term gains. Um, and I imagine that that tackling that cultural aspect of it is in some ways more challenging because, you know, how do you instill in, in young people who want to stand on podiums, the idea that you know that there's a lifetime of climbing ahead of them but especially when it's there's not a lifetime of competitive climbing ahead of them i mean this is like they're here and now they're here to try to their best in the olympics and then and then they'll go on and you know do whatever else after that but i, I guess i'd be interested to hear your take on what the culture is like how do you what is this culture of um that that you're critiquing you know among competitors is it, just yeah tell us about that and and i'd also love to hear any like specific stories of you know you don't have to name names or whatever but just kind of things that you've noticed among your your peers that speak to problematic behavior or just like bad health you know health struggles that they've kind of silently had the culture around this whole issue of body weight all of that in the competitive seen at the world cup level sometimes you see it sometimes it's talked about and some some things are kind of hidden they'll happen behind closed doors but i think in general there's quite a lot of body dysmorphia happening just in the climbing community in general i mean i walk into a room of competition climbers like world cup competition climbers uh and i feel enormous and you walk just I don't know, out in a normal place in the city or something and small to average. In general, like, of course, climbing, we've talked about it before, there's no way to get away from the fact that it's a strength to weight sport. It's going to self-select for smaller, leaner people. That's just how it is. Um, I'm not saying that it's, it's not, but there's quite a lot of body comparison that goes on, both verbal and nonverbal. A lot of people are hyper fixated on what they're eating, what other people are eating or not eating. I think, I don't know, I'm just going to throw a number out there. It seems like 90% of competition climbers have either are currently or have formerly struggled with some form of disordered eating. Not to say like a full-blown eating disorder, but just disordered eating, uh, myself included. Like I'm, you know, it, it's been something that I, I've struggled with before and it definitely will come up again and especially can get worse in these environments, especially when everybody is kind of training together for an extended period of time. Everyone's comparing their climbing to one another. And yeah, there's there's a lot of comparison of really everything. And the really problematic or even more problematic things that I hear about from other competitors are coaches who will encourage or tell their athletes to, to lose weight in order to, to do better. And yeah, that's something that happens behind closed doors that absolutely needs to change. Probably one of the first things that needs to change in order to have the culture as a whole change. Because if we're telling these current climbers, but also the up and coming climbers, the next generation, that this is how it is, especially it's coming from somebody that you respect, you trust, um, and oftentimes you have to impress 
in order to make the team and be able to compete. That's how we're perpetuating this from generation to generation. And that's the point at which it's it's never going to stop. And I do really worry about what young climbers think looking at the World Cup circuit nowadays. You know, again, I, I taught high school um, and I, I, I've always been a bit of a skeptic of, of in particularly youth competition, just its promise of, of what it teaches kids versus the reality I've found to be a little bit disconnected. And, you know, when you talk about this, this obsession, it's, it's all baked into competition because I mean, it's like the podium matters and it kind of makes my head hurt how you can have a high level competition without also sending the message that there is this way to get there, but you're not supposed to take it. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a really Mm -hmm. hard sell to, to do one and not the other kind of a thing. Yeah, I see that. But I mean, kind of that's looking at it also from a doping perspective and WADA mm-hmm. exists. We've said the same thing about all of these banned substances. Well, the thing too, I was thinking about when you were talking about like this, this possibility of all this testing and, you know, uh, again, in, in, t- in terms of like worldwide sport, climbing is, is still very small, very fledgling. And, you know, I just, and I'm sure the IFSC is also like the dollar signs because I mean, to put in this this infrastructure with all this testing, you know, competition to competition to competition, labs, things like that. I mean, it, it sounds really expensive. And I know it is. I mean, because it's like it's this whole industry that goes along with with major sports. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, probably a bit of a reluctance and a dragging of the heels of like, how are we going to pay for, for this kind of mm-hmm. thing as well? How are we going to pay for it? Who's going to pay for it? But I don't think you have to have all of the expensive tests done all the time. I do think right. you could get, you know, your DEXA scan done at the beginning of the year. Um, and if it's your bone density is good and like your results are good, basically, then you say, oh, that's valid for one or two years or, or more. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And then if you do something easy and non-invasive, like monitoring weight, every competition and you see a major fluctuation, then maybe you retest. But if you don't, then the athlete's good to go and you, you don't have to retest. Yeah. That's the start of the season test reminds me of, um, of again, back to high school of wrestlers, you know, they, they, I would see wrestlers sitting there like not eating spitting. Do you guys remember? I don't know if you've ever hung around with wrestlers, but um, they literally were like trying to, trying to dehydrate themselves to make way in. Right. And once mm-hmm. they weighed in, then they could, then they would go and like binge. Right. Um, so it's just, I don't know, not that that would necessarily happen or, or that your body fluctuates that quickly, but it just, you know, I'm always thinking about like, well, as soon as you put these regulations in place, the teams or the people that want to get around them are going to instantly start to think about, well, how do I do that? Like, okay, well, I got to be good when I test and then I got a year to do whatever I want kind of a thing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just like a, a vicious cycle. And I think every other sport has found it to be a vicious cycle of put in regs and then people get around them and then you re-reg and, and, you know, it's just, I think that's what any of these maybe bigger global kind of um, regulatory committees are up against in all different sports. Yeah, but I don't think that that's a good reason for them not to try. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing like oh, global warming is a hard problem to solve. Should we just... One thing I don't want to let slip by was that comment you made about the coaches adding to this uh, culture that you're critiquing and in doing doing so by kind of encouraging weight loss among athletes. I find that to be a really disturbing detail and it strikes me as an irrespons- I don't know. I, I'm kind of like bothered by hearing about that happening. And another thing I just wanted to respond to is the sense that I'm, I, maybe I'm reading between the lines in what you said, but it just seems like different teams from different countries will have different kind of cultures and some might be more on the side of promoting weight loss as like the means to the podium versus others. And, and I imagine that, you know, being in these international competitions, you, you can't help but notice, uh, and be influenced by seeing like, I mean, this came up with like gymnastics and the Russians and, you know, like there was questions about the, some of the Russian gymnasts and whether they were old enough and whether they, you know, had the right 
whether they were too small and thin and stuff. And so I I think that there's obvious parallels between between that and and climbing and and certainly going forward as climbing becomes more established as an Olympic event. But um, yeah, I don't I don't have a question there, but I just didn't want to I just wanted to dwell on the 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 role that coaches play and 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 I think that that's like that's perhaps you know like just to go back to what I've started out with which is this is a conversation that we have every year but we don't really know what to do about it but you know there here's one potential solution is is shining a light on on kind of coaching tactics and highlighting the ones that are working well and the ones and and you know kind of critiquing the ones that aren't yeah it's a really disturbing fact and every time i hear from another athlete there's a like about another coach doing the same kinds of things like i pretty much just go home and cry it's honestly the conversations that i've had since this instagram post have made me realize the problem was much deeper and pervasive than i even imagined which is horrifying to consider. And yes, it definitely depends on the team. Some teams and some coaches are fantastic. They have a really great open dialogue about it. I would point out the Swiss team as one great example. Is just, should there be a, a path for you know athletes to kind of report their coaches to the IFSC? Or is, is there such, a, such an avenue for them at this point? Currently, there is not an avenue that I know of to report your coach for that kind of behavior but i think there absolutely should be part of it too is i think more education for the athletes to get them to realize that that's wrong for their coaches to be telling them to do that or asking them to do that and more education for all of the athletes around like what are the dangers of doing this and what are like healthy habits and like healthy nutrition fueling your body well what are the like maybe how to do that and also what are the benefits of doing that i think there absolutely should be some way for coaches to be investigated by some third party that's neutral third party and have tips against them be anonymous so that athletes can can remain anonymous if they want to report i think the first thing that should be done is that coaches should just have to um, have like a clean police or record basically like have background checks done mm. for the IFSC because I've heard of some disturbing stories of coaches who are allowed to still have an IFSC license but have criminal um, proceedings going on against them wow yeah gosh I'm, I'm over I'm over here like clenching my jaw because you know, it's it's shocking to say that these coaches are doing this and it's and it's terrible and, and but it's also like of course that's gonna happen because it's like I said, it's happened in youth sports. We have a roadmap. Mm-hmm. And that's just the thing that keeps like blowing my mind and everybody's like hunky dory with walking into all the pitfalls that like again I keep going back to gymnastics because the the, the news around gymnastics has been horrible for the last decade. You know, these coaches that were revered for 20 years, suddenly everybody's like, oh, yeah, no, they've been abusing kids forever. You know, it's like in, in, in I feel like climbing is just walking into it like right over the cliff without putting any of this stuff in place. And, and it's, uh, you know, and I've been talking about it for years now. And I'm just like, what you guys are just you're just OK with like you just said, coaches with criminal proceedings like that's cool. Right. <laughs> but I'm just over here like fuming. Because it's like, yes, of course, of course they are. Because that's if you don't have any regulatory practices, it's going to happen. And you know, sexual abuse is is happening, and it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. And so it's like, get ahead of it immediately. You know, that's I'm yeah. like kind of choking up because I'm just like, gah, what is wrong with everybody? Like, get ahead of it. You got to, because it's going to happen. I gotta like calm down. Because it's like, oh, it just drives me nuts. Yeah, anyway, it's I'm sure so it frustrating and horrifying. Really sad. Sorry, Alana. I don't know you that well. I just went on a rant. No, it's um, okay. It's... And I mean, I'm, I'm like with you. I'm with you in this so much. No, I get it. I... Yeah. All right. So we've painted this um, dystopian picture of uh, coaches <laughs> with criminal records abusing athletes to badgering them into body dysmorphic weight loss and uh, that will have lasting health implications for the rest of their lives. 
but there's probably good things about comp climbing too. <laughs> um, maybe we can uh, dwell dwell on those for a minute, Alana. <laughs> What, what, what is the, I mean, like, you know, I've got two daughters They're you know, they're starting gymnastics now. I imagine they're going to be little climbers at some point. Um, you know, I have questions about what the, what the right way is to introduce girls into sports and to foster a healthy relationship with athletics and stuff. And it's, it's clearly just a beneficial thing to have in one's life. It gives lots of meaning and stuff. So maybe you could I would love to hear you ruminate on, on, um, you know, on your career and just what it is that you've really gotten out of this community and this commitment to competition. Well, I would say that the reason that I made it so far in competing without getting completely overwhelmed and distraught by all of what we've talked about is because I've had a really amazing set of coaches. No coach has ever in my life encouraged me to lose weight uh, or even talked about my body. So for that, I will always be grateful to everybody who's ever coached me. I've always been encouraged to pursue climbing for the right reasons because I love it. And I've always stayed in the sport because I love the movement. I love the problem solving and I love the people. I've gotten so much out of it. So everything from the physical, the technical, you're, when you're climbing, nothing else in the world exists. It's just you and the rock. And being able to turn off your brain and connect with the rock in that way is one of the most special feelings that I know. And I think that's what brings me back to it over and over and over. And being able to push yourself in that moment and actually climb something that's at your limit is pretty amazing. And the climbing community has been probably one of the most influential things on myself and my growth and development as a person, like other than my family, probably the climbing community. I was really lucky to grow up on a really amazing youth climbing team in Vancouver. I had a lot of role models doing everything from indoor comp climbing to crushing outdoors, both male and female. And something that was important for me growing up, I'm half Asian. I had a lot of role models who were Asian or half Asian to look up to. So like representation matters. And for me, being able to see people that look like me doing really rad things in climbing or what I perceived as really rad things was really inspirational. And I had so much support through, you know, growing up is always tough, you know, high school hormones, all of that. And I had some really amazing coaches who would support me through everything, listen to me when I, you know, needed to bitch about something that was going on at school but I'll be forever grateful for everything that the climbing community has given to me. And I hope to be able to give, if I could even give half of what I got from this community back, I think that would be an amazing amount. And I hope to be able to give more. After recording this conversation with Alana, two doctors resigned from the IFSC Medical Commission Committee. Committee's president, Dr. Eugene Bircher, and Dr. Volker Schofel both resigned from their positions, citing frustration with the IFSC over their inaction with regards to addressing eating disorders among competitors. The timing of their departure just shortly after Alana's viral Instagram posts leaves one to safely assume that it influenced them. Her post, perhaps, was the straw that broke the camel's back. Now the issue is the proverbial ball in the IFSC's court. We'll see what they do now. In an interview with Climbing Magazine, Dr. Volker explained that the IFSC had promised them that they would address this issue at the start of this season, but they still haven't. They seem to be kicking the can down the road, perhaps hoping that the issue will just go away. 
Having thought about this a little more after our conversation with Alana and reading some of what Dr. Volker is proposing, I become more impressed by what a difficult problem this is to address. It's not really clear exactly what the IFSC can do to stop this. As we just discussed, you can't really change the physics of climbing. You climb harder when you're lighter, up to a point, of course. And in an elite competition, the incentives to be as light as possible won't disappear just because we have more conversations and conscious raising about eating disorders and climbing. Athletes and coaches are pleading with the IFSC to do something, which makes sense. But then you read more about some of the ideas that they have, and they also strike me as fraught in their own way. In that interview, Dr. Volker gives some hints as to what he thinks would be appropriate. They'd begin with BMI screenings as a first step, and if those BMI screenings return low numbers, then they require an athlete to undergo further medical screenings, including blood work, bone density tests, and psychological assessments. He says, quote, the ultimate goal of our recommendations is to see if athletes have red S or not, and if they do, then we would want to ban that athlete. We wanted to limit self-harm and also not set a bad example for the next generation. There's an irony in recommending that we take a group of people who are already presumably quite concerned about how their bodies look and then force them to undergo the constant physical scrutiny by panels of doctors who get to decide whether or not they're able to enter a competition. I can easily imagine how uncomfortable that would be for some folks and perhaps even create new ways in which comp climbers will learn to have less healthy relationships with their bodies. So while I'm sympathetic to the concerns of these doctors and the climbers who are calling out on the IFSC to please do something, I think there are potential downstream consequences that may in the long run also be bad for their own reasons. I'm somewhat skeptical in general that we can just engineer our way out of this problem with the right rules and regulations. Ultimately, you can't force people to eat more, nor can you change the physics of climbing. Nor can you ignore the way competition accelerates all the perverse incentives in rock climbing to be as light as possible to gain a performance advantage. Even though eating disorders have always been a part of climbing, competition absolutely supercharges them. And because all of the really bad stuff that comes with prolonged calorie deprivation likely won't appear until the future, you can just kind of ignore and continue to pretend like everything is fine. The platonic ideal is that people autonomously choose to eat the right amount of healthy foods, learn to have a healthy relationship with their own eating, and to the degree that they even think about their own physical appearance, they think of it in an unbalanced, positive light. I don't see how the kind of scrutiny that is being recommended could move climbers more toward that state. Just as we've come to understand that playing football means that you're going to get concussions, it's becoming more and more clear that to be a calm climber means that you're at risk for developing an unhealthy relationship with food and your body. The concussion debate in football is a good parallel. We know that these players are getting hit hard and that those hits may add up to some pretty devastating effects down the road, but somehow we can all just push those ethical questions out of our minds when we watch the next game and get caught up in the thrill of watching live sports. The NFL could solve this problem overnight if they just made the rules that it was touch football instead of tackle, but of course they won't. We want to see tackles, just not so hard that it causes lasting damage. And we want elite comp climbers, but just not so elite that they cause themselves lasting damage. But I have to wonder, is that balance really possible? just finished another episode of the runout podcast i'm andrew bisharat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com and i'm chris kaluse and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die that's true we also have a patreon that you can support our show at and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com no no, no patreon.com slash runout podcast yes <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runout podcast.com <laughs> no dot com slash runout podcast something like that give us some money 